Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 187 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I have the pleasure of catching up with my friend, Billy Abbott. Billy is a whiskey writer, educator, and as it turns out, philosopher. He's here to share some of his journeys through some of the better and lesser known whiskey categories, including some exciting spirits from Asia, and to share some details about an upcoming book project he's currently working on. But before we get too carried away, let's take a quick detour so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Bobby Burns. It's named after poet Robert Burns, who's widely considered to be the national poet of Scotland. To make it, you'll need one and a half ounces of blended Scotch whiskey, one and a half ounces of sweet vermouth, for this application, I'd select a dark option like Punta Mez and one half to three quarters of an ounce of Benedictine liqueur. Combine these ingredients in a mixing beaker with ice, stir until well chilled and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with a lemon twist. A slightly more precious garnish would be to express and discard the lemon twist and serve the drink with a sweet biscuit or slice of shortbread. Now, if you're following along at home, you'll notice that this is a Manhattan and that it very closely resembles another Manhattan variation, the Vucare. This explains the fact that no two recipes of the Bobby Burns seem to agree on ingredient ratios, much like many Manhattan variations. More traditional, i.e. mid 20th century recipes for the Bobby Burns seem to agree on an equal split between scotch and sweet vermouth, while more contemporary versions pair back the sweetness quite a bit. This is further complicated by the fact that when the drink first appeared in print in the early 1900s, it was made with Irish whiskey and absinthe. So the moral of the story here is that a good Bobby Burns should closely resemble a Manhattan, but you can feel free to mess with the ingredient ratios just a bit. Personally, I wouldn't mind swapping out that blended scotch for a single malt on occasion to really let the terroir and the regional character drive the flavor of the drink, but hey, that's just my take on it follow your bliss. So, now that you're equipped with a fittingly poetic cocktail to round out National Poetry Month, let's turn our attention back to the interview. Some of the topics we cover in this wide-ranging conversation with spirits writer, educator, and judge Billy Abbott include how Billy took the leap from a career in computing and database management to pursue his passion for whiskey, and what the past decade has looked like for him following that drastic vocational shift. What it means to be a generalist in a world teeming with whiskey specialists, and why it pays to take a curious, humble, and omnivorous approach to learning and teaching about spirits. Then, we take a slight left turn and talk about Asian spirits, including how Billy became one of the first Awamori Jimbiners, his thoughts on shochu and baijo, and the tricky business of introducing large markets to spirits they know nothing about. But that's not all. We give you the inside scoop on Billy's new book. We cover some exciting new spirits producers and trends in Europe and the UK. And we even wax poetic on the importance of sandwich ergonomics in the age of COVID. 
Billy is a wonderful educator and ambassador for spirits of all types. You can view his work by visiting the Whiskey Exchange blog. You can follow him on Instagram at meetrobot, all one word. And you can follow the link on the show notes page to check out his upcoming book, The Philosophy of Whiskey. With that, it's my pleasure to present this eclectic and insightful interview with my friend and yours, Billy Abbott. Billy, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So as we like to do, can you just kick us off by telling our listeners who you are, what you do, and uh, why we're here about to maybe talk a little bit about whiskey? Yeah, well, um, uh, my name is Billy Abbott. Uh, By day, I am, um, depending on who you speak to, maybe you look at my business card, uh, I am officially uh, internally within the Whiskey Exchange, the company I work for during the day. Uh, We're a big online retailer um, of booze of all kinds, but with the word whiskey in the name, I am content and training manager um but that doesn't sound particularly sexy so my business cards say ambassador because i spend my days talking rubbish about booze to whoever will you know listen to me talk about booze really um no i i manage our internal training programs uh, i write for our various different companies within our our group of companies that i work for um and uh, but yes that's my day job but talking about drinks and training people about drinks um but by night i'm a freelance person doing all the same things um which uh, leads to a fantastic form of work-life balance where, uh, you know, very much I, I my, my hobby and my work are very similar. Um, but yeah, this is uh, yesterday, I think it was. It's the 10th anniversary of me uh, leaving my previous job. Um, and in a couple of weeks' time, I have my 10th anniversary of starting at the Whiskey Exchange. Uh, my previous job was as a database engineer and software developer for a financial data company um, based here in the city of London in the UK, but working for a company based in... Uh, Connecticut and New York. Um, so yeah, I, I switched from finance and data and databases and all that kind of things to um, writing real words uh, about um, booze, which is yeah. a, it's an interesting move, but yeah, it seems to have worked so far. Well, congratulations on ten years, and uh, you know the next the next uh, evolution of of this uh, of this Pokemon we might call it would be to go from ambassador to evangelist. That's when you know you've really hit the the big leagues. I, I, I do spend a little bit of my time informing people, mainly the internet at the moment. I, I do I do spend a large amount of time on Facebook, going, no, that's just that's just really not the way it is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, as I'm sure you know, people being wrong on the internet is a very, very difficult thing to allow to continue. And I, I spend my days trying to educate, often by telling people they're wrong on the internet. Mm. Yeah, so evangelist, I'm, I'm moving there. It's, it's, it's on the list. I'm on my way. Yeah, we need to. We, we do need to keep some of these internet people in line. Um, so, um, you know, the nice thing is we do have listeners. They, you know, might be construed as internet people. So, um, I, I'd love to um, maybe. We're gonna hit down the line, maybe some some lesser known whiskey stuff, maybe maybe from the the Asian continent, which I'm very excited about. Um, but you know what? I guess areas when you're working for the whiskey exchange, maybe talk a little bit about what the whiskey exchange is and does, um, and then you know what what areas of focus do you have, uh, either traditionally or at the at this very moment when when you're writing things for them. Well. Uh, the Whiskey Exchange, um, we are a big online retailer over here in the UK. Uh, we ship all over the world. Hello there, lovely people in America. We do ship to you somehow. I don't ask the guy who sorts it how it happens, but I've been told it's legal, and I'm not going to go any further than that, but it is legal. Nobody got arrested. Even that, no, no nobody got arrested. But um, 
we ship all over the world. We've been going for 22 years now. I think it's our 22nd year. My boss, a uh, guy, Sikinder Singh, he and his brother Rajbir um, grew up above uh, a liquor store over here in London. And when their parents retired in uh, 1999, they moved the business online. Uh, started this whole brand new thing and was work. They were one of the first sort of specialist online drinks retailers. And uh, Sikinder especially is a collector. Um, he has one of the largest whiskey collections in the world. And uh, we always find it amusing where we get like a, a Guinness world of records sort of announcement of the world's biggest whiskey collection. And we just literally walk into Sikinder's boardroom at the back of our office building and go, this cupboard is bigger than that collection. Never mind, yeah. So he, he's one of the, the the biggest collectors in the world, and he's brought that into the world of spirits in general. So we're, we're known as the Whiskey Exchange. We do a lot more. About half our stock at any time is whiskey. Um, we specialize in old and rare stuff um, uh, as well. And so I, I, I have this awful, awful job of not only do I have to talk about all of the boozes under the sun, uh, I also have to... Uh, look into research, try old and rare whiskey uh, and learn about that side of things as well as whiskey from all over the world. It's, as I say, while we're, we're, we are the Whiskey Exchange, we do have lots of other stuff. Half the stuff we have is whiskey. Um, so I started out life as a whiskey specialist. But the reason why I ended up getting my job was because I like everything um, and I'm interested in everything. So right from the beginning, I think actually the, uh, the articles I wrote back when I was just a, a blogger who wrote code during the day i wrote an article about tequila um about a tasting i attended at the whiskey exchange and i got uh, an email from the guy who uh, presented the tasting a couple of days after i wrote it saying um two things one you got my company name wrong could you fix that um two um did i really say all that i said well, yeah, most of it well, i did a bit of research as well and I went, oh next thing i knew i was a very much uh, somebody who was known to the company and ended up uh, getting a job um, leaving behind all those years of things, but coming in as a specialist in whiskey, but ready to learn about whiskey in the last decade of basically showed me one, I didn't know anything. Um, and two, I now know some things. And three, I know there are more things to learn. Mm. But yeah, but no, the, the whiskey world is really where I sort of come from, where I am best known, even if I do try and jump on everything else out there as well. Yeah, it's a real tragedy that here in the US, we have regulations on many different levels that prohibit the people who uh, like, like sort of like the online retailing and not just retailing, but, but aggregating, you know, like sourcing things from all around the world and then selling them online. Um, I think, I think it's obviously it's super valuable that the whiskey exchange, um, can, can ship to at least some U S states. They're, they're just most, most U S states. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a real tragedy that we don't have them here in the U S because it seems like one of the, one of the things that I've always felt is that education goes hand in hand with consumption of alcohol by enthusiasts. You only ever really become an enthusiast about something by learning about it. And generally then, then you taste some and then, then, the flavor begins to integrate that learning into your brain, not just through like, huh, okay, A plus B equals C, but also through just the experience of the flavor. And so I, th I think that the education component and the just 
the writing and the reviewing and the, you know, putting two things next to each other or having a flight, it's just super valuable um, to be able to go to one single place and have not only the opportunity to purchase bottles, but also um, the the wide range of educational resources. So that's something I would love to see more of here in the U.S. And I'm glad that glad that you're doing good work in the U.K., um, to make that available to people. Um, and one, one thing I wanted to talk about is the sort of generalist approach that you just described, because in many cases, uh, now you and I met at uh, the ADI judging of um, craft spirits. And one of the things they do there smartly, rightly, is they, they tend to take people and they group them into specialty tables, right? You've got your, your whiskey table. You've got your gin. I'm, I'm usually over with the gin people. Um, I don't do the whiskey guys. Yep. And then there's the, then there's the problematic rum table that sits in the middle and just sort of makes trouble for everyone. And then, um, there's sort of the oddball table, which is, um, sort of self-designated as the table where, you know, they're going to taste a lot of very different stuff. Uh, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to, dig a little bit more into your approach as a generalist, but also a whiskey person, because generally in the whiskey world, you're a scotch person or you're a bourbon person or et cetera, et cetera. So do you, do you agree with that? Do most people that you come across in the whiskey world world tend to be specialists? And how, how do you think about being a generalist in that space? Yeah. And the main, most people do seem to be specialists. Again, it's that whole thing of people dig really really deep into a particular calorie become known for that thing unfortunately um i've always been somebody who uh, who likes to know all things about all things and so right since my sort of early days of getting into drinks I, I used to be a bartender in i worked in a university bar it's pretty much the lowest level of bartender you can find in the uk i was serving students while i was a student um but through that you know i got to try a load of stuff because oh no someone seems to have broken this glass of tequila i think i will have to drink it now just to make sure i know what it tastes like and so from there i got became just interested in flavor and i'm a massive food geek as well so for me it's just finding new things and the thing you're saying about knowing how things taste and giving those you know giving people let people taste things and from there they can learn about them that's like sort of a key part of what I try and do, the training education stuff I do. Um, and just in general, and for me, as I try more things, I wanted to try more things. You know, it's, it's that sort of rolling stone sort of approach of, uh, of just constantly want to try and find the next thing and learn about them. So in the whiskey world, yeah, we do have, you know, I'm sort of like a massive whiskey geek. So I've gone quite deep on whiskey and most other things I haven't gone quite so deep on. I have a, a decent level of knowledge across most categories of spirit and, a much deeper knowledge in certain places. Um, so whiskey's my big thing. Um, but also I, at one point in time, I was digging very deep into the absinthe world uh, and gin. I've moved away from that over the years because of just, you know, things I've been exposed to. I'm now dealing a lot with Japanese spirits, uh, Awamori and Shochu especially. Uh, I'm looking into jumping into the well of sake at the moment just because it's nice and I like it. And I want to try some more of it and learning more about it means I might be able to find some good ones. Um, but yeah, it is, it's a, it's a weird one of being sort of more generous because the main thing is that people don't expect it, especially in the whiskey world. So uh, I am Billy, the whiskey blogger in the eyes of many people, despite the fact that I am currently doing a load of work on Japanese spirits 
and have done work across all these different things. I'm a judge for beer competitions. I'm a, I'm a judge for um, recently. I was judging for the IWSC for Baijiu, and sort of like you know Chinese weird and wonderful spirits, which was that was a bit of an experience. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those ones where the expectation is if you, especially if you do whiskey, you do whiskey and nothing else. And yeah, it's um, slightly annoying, but. It does sort of, you know, as you say, it does sort of bear out for most people. It does seem to be the way that people go. Yeah, I, I personally, um, I think one of the reasons why we get along is I personally also try to be a generalist. Uh, I, I generally don't walk up to a glass of spirits and ask what it is before tasting. It, to me, that's like a little bit like looking at a gift horse in the mouth. It's like, oh, somebody at least purports to have tried really hard to make this taste good, I think I'm going to give it a try and, and try to see where they're coming from. Uh, so I, I, I like being a generalist and I do agree that it, it tends to tends to throw people off or at least um, go against their expectations. But you mentioned the Japanese spirits and in our little back and forth before this recording, you mentioned something about being an Awamori Jinbiner. Did I pronounce yes. that correctly? And what the heck is that? <laughs> Um, well, uh, actually, where are we? 2021. So early 2020, just before the joys of all the global lockdowns and fun and games, um, I went out to Japan with a group of people from the WSET, the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust. Um, it's a bunch of us who had just done the Level 3 Spirits course and who are educators with WSET, which I am. And we wanted to basically the, uh, the, the local producers in the south of Japan, both in Kagoshima Prefecture and in um, uh, Okinawa, uh, the islands to the south, um, they were really interested in developing some knowledge of shochu and aomori. Aomori is made in Okinawa, shochu made all over Japan, um, outside of the country. They wanted to bring in some external people who were really interested and go with that. Off the back of that and some other things that were going on, um, the guys in Okinawa developed this program, the Awamori Jinbuna program. So Jinbun is a local word in Okinawa. They have lots of dialect. Um, it's, it's a bunch of islands really quite far away from Japan. They have a very different sort of like a language in, in, um, for, for lots of different bits and pieces. Uh, unfortunately, I speak no Japanese, so I, I'm, it's, it's all over my head. I just smile and nod and, and learn my little bits as I go along. Um, and throw myself very much on the uh, the mercy of the people who are translating and helping me understand what's going on. The jimbun is uh, traditional knowledge, so knowledge sort of like handed down over time. And so an Awamori jimbuna is somebody who, it's, it's a made-up word. It's a made-up anglicization of a Japanese word, but it's people who know the, history, you know, the knowledge about Awamori. They have knowledge about Awamori and have developed this knowledge. And so we did a, a six-month course um, through lockdown, doing seminars with the guys back in Japan um, and just tasting and learning about how Aomori is made. Uh, after we visited a load of distilleries and learned in, in person, we then went into the science of it more, the development of flavor, the way that in Japan they approach um, talking about Aomori and all this sort of thing. You know, it's a, a fairly uh, in-depth course just to sort of give people an understanding and appreciation of the stuff. Um, me and the rest of the gang who went over there, we, we quite liked it anyway. And it wasn't just because we were out drinking with the producers and sort of seeing how it's made and what are you doing today? Are we walking around a, a, a rice paddy before we get fed a load of interesting booze later? It was, it's really the flavors of it and the way that it's made, it creates something very different to the spirits we have in the Western tradition. 
the way it's made is different. The ingredients are different. The whole approach to uh, distillation is so different from almost every spirit we might find sort of coming out of the traditional sort of European side of spirits, which is now spread all around the world. So, yeah, it's um, I, I presented at uh, Bar Convent Berlin last year on behalf of the, uh, the Okinawa Distillers Association uh, and the Almory Jimbana program giving people a, uh, an introduction to the wonders of Aramori. And since then, um, our little group has, we, we, we've now, we now officially have, uh, we have badges, we have, we have membership cards, the whole lot, um, you know, um, and we are sort of now working um, with the guys in Okinawa to try and help them understand the rest of the world of spirits to help other people outside of Okinawa and learn about Aramori uh, and bring more of it out to the world. So that more people can understand and try this you know, really complex and interesting spirit which is so rarely seen outside of you know the islands where it's made mm. so it's uh it's a rice-based distillate then yeah yeah so shochu in general shochu awamori can almost be seen as a, a subset of shochu um it's this probably the original shochu it was uh the riku kingdom the islands of okinawa was part of well the riku kingdom disappeared i think in the 1500s was all rolled into japan but Okinawa was the center of this kingdom, which is a very much a sea trading kingdom. And they brought in technology and ingredients through there, including distillation and that side of things. And so Aomori developed in Okinawa. And depending, you know, the history is a little bit fuzzy and I don't have enough of a, a grasp on it yet. But um, it looks like Aomori was sort of like, you know, inspired the shochu production that then came after it. And shochu is a, a wider field. Aomori is, as you say, rice. Uh, it's rice and koji and koji rather than malting stuff like we do over in the west you know take your grain trick it into growing so it makes some sugar in there um what makes enzymes that will make sugar appear out of your grains uh, to release those sugars you instead use a mold and the mold starts eating into your uh, into your rice but it also injects the enzymes that break down the starches into sugars and reveals these sugars which can turn into alcohol so Sometimes they refer to koji as malt when they translate it, and it's two totally different ways of doing things, create totally different flavors. And that different flavor side of things is really where I find shochu and awamori really interesting. Um, awamori uses a very specific type of koji, uh, black koji, which creates almost like smoky flavors on occasion and only uses rice, whereas you can get sweet potato, um, barley, uh, I think it's like 40-some ingredients it can use. And I've got some ginger stuff next door. It uses ginger in the fermentation, hmm. and it's insane. It's totally mad stuff. But Awamori is all rice, black koji, so you end up with this spirit that varies from tasting like mushrooms through to tasting like tropical fruit, everything in between, with this sort of weird smokiness hiding underneath it because of this koji and the, uh, the flavors it produces. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's so different, though, to Western spirits, that it's one of those ones where I feed it to people and they sort of give me this look of confusion. It's, it's not quite a, a Baijiao level of difference. You know, it doesn't taste like drinking soy sauce um, or soy sauce that's been run down the middle of a farm, um, that sort of level of interesting flavor. Um, but it does have some, you know, very, very different flavors. Um, my colleague, uh, Dawn Davis, who is the buyer at the Whiskey Exchange, uh, dropped me an email the other day saying, have you tried this Awamori before? I've got some. It tastes like a swimming pool. I can't drink it. 
So I, I looked at my cupboard and it's the one I've been drinking uh, for the last year since I got back from, uh, from Okinawa. It turned out she had a special five-year-old matured version, matured in clay pots for five years. It had gone a little bit more swimming poorly, but also she has a much more um, sensitive palate to those flavors than me. To me, it just tasted of fruit. It was fantastic. And I gave her some of the younger stuff, which she liked better. Mm. But it is one of those ones where it's just such a different flavor profile. For me, I've drunk enough of it now that I'm starting to not notice some of the things which are different. But at the same time, when you just drop that in front of somebody who's used to drinking, you know, white spirits, these are, these are unaged in wood. These are just white spirits. Give them that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes has the intensity of uh, funky white rum and it, it that shocks people and these do the same thing even mm-hmm. though they're normally bottled about 25 percent abv as well so lower strength intense flavors confusing weird different yeah they're really nice yeah yeah uh this reminds me of a conversation i had with derek sandhouse um from ming river yeah. baijo and uh it it seems like one of the big hurdles that we encounter uh, between the Asian Koji spirits and the more traditional Western style malted and then, you know, yeast, heavy yeast fermentation spirits uh, is partially expectations. Um, You you know, Derek talked about the intense regionality of Baijiu. There's, you know, the the strong flavor and then the, the, his, his focus is the Szechuan style and then light, light, uh, uh, strong aroma and light aroma, I, I believe. And then uh, there's like Phoenix aroma or something like, like that. There, there, there's um, a, there's a lot that we don't know. And it's just Asia is just so big that I think a lot of us fail to understand some of the um, more regional nuances of, of the culture there and, and the, the cuisine and the flavors, but, uh, but also just the expectations. I, I mean, I think, um, and, and this this maybe goes a little bit back into into the whiskey world. I think I think with whiskey, you know, we, we get so comfortable with it and we develop our pet style, whether that's bourbon or scotch or et cetera, Irish whiskey. Um, and I, I think it's so easy to like you just described, you're, you're starting to not notice you're getting so you're getting comfortable with Awamori in this way that, that you're maybe not noticing some of the things that would make a, a brand new um, person who's never had it before kind of sit up and take notice. And and uh, I, I think that's that's just something we need to keep in mind, especially, as you said, as as you're actually physically working with these brands to to see how to educate these people. I, I think it it's very difficult to start with the expectations, right? Because the expectations are invisible to us. We don't realize we're walking around with all these expectations about spirits. And yet that's almost the first barrier you have to break down as an educator that wants to educate Western palates about Asian or Eastern spirits and flavors. So uh, it seems tough. Yeah, we... It's one of the, the sort of key things in general when it comes to education. And it's again, it's as you go through, you know, the last 10 years, I, I've been an educator for 15 some years. Back in my old IT days, I taught people about computer programming, but also management techniques, which if anybody's ever, and time management especially, and if anybody's ever spoken to me about that, you realize I was definitely teaching a course, not teaching my own experience. But when it comes to getting people to understand these spirits. And one of the first things you need to do is to be able to step back from your own knowledge and see what you know. And um, I've been teaching a lot of WSET level two spirits courses recently. Um, 
the whiskey exchange is really invested in bringing a load of our people up to speed on that course and make sure we have the qualifications within the company and have that expertise um, within the company in general and the group of companies. And over the past sort of two or three months where I've been doing a lot of these in intensity training, every time I do another course, I sort of go, that's another thing I need to make sure that I talk to people about. The things you notice as you teach people, the, the assumptions you make that you didn't realize you were making. And it's one of those things to try and become a better educator is always to be able to step back outside of yourself a little bit, change what you do and understand that, you know, people don't necessarily know what's in your head already. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to know what, to work out what things are in your head that people wouldn't know when you say them. But when it comes to spirits, my, my standard one at the moment is, talking to people about whiskey and increasingly I speak to people in the US who've never had a smoky whiskey. And I've been dealing with Scotch whiskey now for the entirety of my adult life. I've been drinking smoky whiskey since I've been able to drink. And then I speak to somebody who's just come from a tradition of drinking bourbon. And they say, so what's this smoky whiskey you guys are talking about? And it's like, ah, now that's going to be an interesting reaction when you try that for the first time, it being a, a flavor that's outside of your expe you know, expectation. You've had smoky things before, you know, maybe, but not like that. And yeah, so it's that stepping outside of expectation. And, you know, the, the big one for me is, you know, Shochu and Aomori are different, but by Joe and uh, Derek, um, Derek Sandhouse, I have his books. I have a bottle of Ming River literally within arm's length at the moment, uh, given to me by our buyer at work who said, I think this is for you. You will definitely want this more than I want it. And it's that, again, when you try a whole new category of spirits, which is so different, it kicks you as somebody who will have fallen into those ruts of you know, thinking you know what's going on. Something that's so different kicks you out of the rut and goes, think about everything you're doing. And yeah, uh, I did a tasting a few years ago now of all, I think it's 14 styles of, of Baijiu, officially recognized ones, the four major ones, and then the other 10 including our friend, the Phoenix Aroma, um, <laughs> which if I remember correctly, I think it's Phoenix Aroma, which is matured rather in clay pots uh, or, or ceramic or whatever. It's matured in baskets, which are filled with Hessian sacks, which are sealed with blood and clay. Yeah, an interesting, you know, obviously that's what you do a thousand years ago if you need to make a waterproof sack. And there's Chi Aroma, which is mixed with pork fat, because, you know, why wouldn't you? And I sat there for this tasting with a group of Chinese producers occasionally coming up and saying something about what they did with a translator. And I just sat there and every time I tried something and someone said something, it was like, I need to make some more notes. This is not what I expect. This is unlike anything I've tried or understood before. And those things are great. They're just kicking you into change the way you go back and look at what you know and make sure you're telling people about what you know in the right way. Mm. I think there's a, you know, th this is maybe a little shop talky, but I, I think it's valuable. I think what we're talking about, if if I were, if I were a producer, let's say of rum, we'll, we'll make we'll make this we'll make this a an, an easier comparison if we if we just say this is rum because lately I've had a lot of aged rums that have a profile that makes me think. Oh, they're selling this rum in the U.S. They're trying to turn bourbon drinkers into rum drinkers by presenting them with a rum that tastes like a bourbon. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's 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 one way to go about it. Um, 
but I wonder, I, it seems to be a trickier, a trickier way to, to actually have people want to go and try something that is very outside of their experience. I don't know. It seems like you and I are very much on the same page where we get excited when something just like the first time I tasted green chartreuse, it was like seeing a new color. Right. And to me, that's the most exciting thing in the world. And that's what I go out of my way to seek. I am a thrill seeker, not in that I want to ride a roller coaster every day or go skydiving, but I'm a thrill seeker in that I want to keep searching for those things that are like seeing a new color on my palate, like Ming River Baijo was when I when I first tried that. And and that's not even that crazy of a, a Baijo. It's made for Western palate. So um I don't know. I just I, I think it, it's something I've been thinking about of like how do how do producers of thing of spirits that don't have a, a large share in a US market or a European market like do that almost black magic that that can flip that switch in people's mind that make them want to be more like you and me. Cause I don't, I don't want to think that you or I are all that special. We just happen to have had a set of experiences that are like, Oh, that kind of, you know, reinforce the behavior that we currently engage in. Um, so I don't know that that's, that's a ramble, but I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. It's, it, I've been working with our Mori producers recently. And one of the questions they always have is so, how do we get more people outside of Japan drinking this? And again, they, they have their own set of assumptions. So the standard way of drinking awamori um, would be to drink it with soda water or just with chilled water and ice. It's 25% to start with in the bottle, sometimes up to 40% in some you know, releases, but you know, generally lower strength. And you mix it half and half to make something that's about strength of wine. Two, three to one makes something down the strength of beer. And you drink it with dinner. And it's not drunk on its own, really. And they have some which are drunk in little shots. And they have these little tiny little cups, little clay cups you drink it out of. And that's an old-fashioned thing which people haven't really done until more recently where there's just connoisseurships coming back to it. But they say, okay, so this is how we serve it. It's like, yeah, but that's not how we drink it in the West. So we now need to try and find some common ground because that's a really great way of drinking it. But that's outside of the experience. And that's where you see things like, you know, the rums. We have the same thing in the Scotch whiskey world. You know, there's rums which are aimed at the Scotch whiskey market. You know, take something like uh, the El Dorado range of rums. Great rums, but they have a character that whiskey drinkers can just latch onto and understand and then follow through. And those brands are the ones which, like, you know, they're the, the gateway brands. They're, they're not, they're almost like not quite watering themselves down, but they're presenting themselves as a place that is approachable. And yeah, I have the exact same thing of, do you want to be the, uh, the, the not necessarily authentic thing within your category, or do you want to be the thing that nobody's going to drink? It, it's, a, it's a difficult balance. Mm. But the other thing for me is that a lot of folks in the world of, a lot of people who are buying drinks at the moment are in search of the new. So you look in the craft beer world, uh, most of the people I know who are interested in the smaller breweries and the interesting bits and pieces will go out and find these things they don't want to buy the same beer more than once. They might settle down on a thing, but they're always after the new thing. In the the whiskey world, that I have most exposure to, um, people want to have the new bottling. They don't care about the core range. They don't care about the everyday stuff. They want to know what the next limited edition is. And you see that across the entirety of the spirits market. And it's only a little step from that to, I want to try a new category, 
rather than I don't want to try the same thing. And it's trying to, for me, I think of my, I'm trying to think of ways to bridge that gap. It's the how to push people into that slight extra element of newness to step over that line into the completely foreign rather than the thing I'm fairly certain I have a good idea of what it tastes like, but I won't know exactly. And so, yeah, it's just different stages. But at the same time, there are many people out there who just want to drink a nice thing that they know is nice. And, you know, that is also a fantastic place. It's just giving the opportunity to learn what the nice things are. I think there might even be sort of a design element to this. Uh, and, and I think us being in a pandemic right now presents a, a lot of limitations specifically for physical liquor stores. Um, there's not as many people allowed in, um, you know, there, there's not brands in there doing tastings constantly, but uh, I, I, and of course, the whiskey exchange is, is a completely different thing in that it's it's not quite. We have, we have three stores as well. Oh, really? And so, and yeah, we, we're just that we've had two of them open for most of the pandemic. Uh, in, in the UK, of course, with our reputation, uh, liquor stores are an essential business. So we have had, we have been open for pretty much the entirety of the last year. We reduced our shops down to two of the three. And we have exact, those exact same problems, you know. We no longer do sampling for customers. We had you know, people who come in and say, I'm interested in this. And we say, ah, try it. And so uh, along with that, now the staff don't have the chance because they can't try the things either. You know, it really is you know, a very, very weird time for for everything around that. Yeah, I, I just see, I, I feel like if you were now, liquor stores are in the business of, again, making money. So going back to your question of, do you want to be the, the brand that uh, is, is slightly off, uh, or not not the authentic version and makes money or do you want to be the brand that is very authentic that doesn't make money liquor stores are here to make money uh, but i could see at least in a thought experiment if a liquor store was designed to try and get people introduced to new things that would be a liquor store where i would want to see a lot of rotating displays and a lot of uh you know this this quarter you know this season's featured category is by Joe, you know, like, and, and, you know, so every Friday come in, we're going to be sampling, you know, a line from, from this category, from light aroma, from strong aroma. Uh, and you know what, that would get me in there every Friday that, that, you know, to, to do that, I, I could see that happening, but it's, it's a, that's a very tricky model to, to probably implement and perhaps uh, would be a fairly expensive model to run and maintain. So um, for what it's worth, this is this is Billy and I talking about the ways that we're going to try and manipulate the world into being more like us, right? <laughs> yeah, very much so, you know. Oh dear. Make us less special than we are currently um, for all values of the word special. Yes. Well, you actually have, speaking of special, you have a special project that you're working on. Mm -hmm. uh, before we hit record here, you, you said that you had just been, um, you know, sort of, head down for several hours today already working on it. Did, can you share with our listeners what maybe maybe just a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, sure. Well, um, basically, I'm writing a book. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a weird one in that I was approached to write it as part of a series um, for the British Library over here in the UK. Um, they started, so the philosophy of and a variety of things. Uh, it started with the philosophy of beards, which was a, a reprint of a, a book from a, a while ago. And it was such a big hit that they decided to commission some new entries. And so they've been going along with uh, mostly food and drink, which is a, an interesting development from the beard front. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to complain because they've asked me to write a book about whiskey. So there's uh, gin and beer and cheese and coffee are out there already. Uh, and uh, I'm in the process of putting together a book all about the wonders of, um, of whiskey. So yeah, it's it's 
I've been, I've been meaning to write a book about whiskey for years. I have uh, on my desk currently, I have two notebooks of things where I was developing ideas in one case where I was beaten to it. And that's currently being published, my book, damn. But uh, this one is, it's one of those sort of like more general books. It's a, it's not like a, a big in-depth thing. She's going to pull apart and expose the world of whiskey, but it's all about everywhere. And this is one of the things, again, comes down to my, my sort of generalism and my wanting to know everything about everything is that it's a book that is about everywhere in the whiskey world. And it's really about, I think my, my sort of thesis I propose at the beginning is that uh, whiskey is tied into the fabric of everything that we do, even if you don't realize it is. And the book is talking about how um, whiskey around the world is a deeper part of culture than you might think is tied into the way that cultures have developed, especially if you look at Scotland, Ireland, America, Canada, um, which are the, oh, and Japan, which are the five, well, I'm, I'm on Canada at the moment. I finished off writing my first draft of the US today. Um, so yeah, diving into Canada from my notes uh, later on. Again, looking at those countries, and even if you don't realize it's intertwined in there, but then looking into how um, whiskey is is woven into culture and drinking culture and understanding that side of things as well. As I say, the philosophy of whiskey, very much that sort of idea of sort of like, you know, how whiskey really is sort of tied into everything we do in the world. But yeah, so uh, it's one of those ones where I, I, I'm still waiting for more feedback from the publishers and sort of like tailoring what I'm doing, but it's early days yet. Although I do deliver the book in about four weeks time. So yeah, it's um, early days, it's, but your deadline's in a month. <laughs> yeah, early days, deadline's in a month. I've already been working on it for two or three weeks. Um, it's the joys of a fast turnaround uh, and it will be published. Well, I've, I've I know it'll be published because there's already a page on Amazon for it. So I think that, that counts as it being a real thing, even if it's not finished yet. Uh, but it's meant to be appearing uh, mid-October. And so, yeah, Philosophy of Whiskey, available from Amazon and other good bookshops like Foils. Foils also have a page. This is the wonders of me just searching on a Saturday morning to see if anybody else had used the same name before. I need to find my book online before I'd finished it, which is a, <laughs> an interesting development. Yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. So, interesting. I, I guess I can sort of see the connection between, you know, different. there's different styles of beards, of course, different styles of cheeses, different styles of whiskeys. This, this, seems, this seems to, to be, you know, it seems, it seems like you're, you're at least following the concept pretty well. Um, have you learned anything kind of surprising as, as you've been researching this book? Uh, I, I actually, I, you know, I'm thinking about Canada right now, and I, I, I know almost nothing about Canadian whiskey, and they're sort of our next-door neighbors. 
kind of embarrassed. Well, it's one of these weird ones where, you know, looking at my, my books I have to research about Canada, specifically Canada is the, the country I'm on to now. Scotch whiskey, I could write most of it without reference almost because I've been so steeped in Scotch whiskey history. Ireland, I've been talking about it for years. Japan, I've been writing timelines of Japanese whiskey uh, since the, uh, the only really in-depth book about Japanese whiskey came out. I've been building on that research for years. Um, but Canada... Uh, the only book out there until recently was uh, uh, Davin de Kergamo's Canadian Whiskey. Um, that we've described Davin before as uh, the, the man who literally wrote the book on Canadian Whiskey. There is one, and he wrote it. Uh, there are now two, um, and he wrote the other one as well. So uh, well, they, he, has, he has a co-author on the other one as well, and that's digging more into modern distilleries. And you know, the the big thing I've I've learned is. Because so I've never really looked at all these different countries and th- those those five, so Scotland, Ireland, America, United States of America, sorry, Canada, and Japan, they're all very, very separate. When you generally think of their histories, you don't see them intertwining so much. But when you actually look into them, they are all really connected. So Canadian whiskey, the big thing I learned a couple of days back, which I didn't realize, is that Canadian whiskey was imported uh, into the UK, so into Scotland and England and Ireland in fairly decent qualities in the early half of the um, 1800s, the 19th century. And then all of a sudden that stopped around the time that Scottish and Irish whiskey became big um, after phylloxera broke out in, uh, around the time phylloxera broke out in France and killed the brandy industry. But that also then killed the Canadian whiskey industry. But at the same time, that's when the US was starting to build distilleries, but then there was the Civil War, and that then led after the Civil War into this, and then that meant that this happened, and then that meant that this happened over there. And it's a global industry, and it has been. You know, When you look at Japan, why do the Japanese make whiskey? Um, many different reasons. Number one being um, Commodore Perry broke the, uh, sort of the the Japanese isolation and left some whiskey behind when he went off to uh, go and do stuff. When he came back, they said, this is quite nice. We may do some trade for this. Um, that's a very big simplification of one of the most sort of, you know, groundbreaking things in sort of world history over in that part of the world. But, you know, the U.S., are responsible for a chunk of the opening of Japan, which then led to trade there. And then we roll in global depressions and world wars. Everything is connected. I, I've now got my, my next bit is the other countries you don't know so much about. So England and Wales in the UK, then rolling in uh, Taiwan, India, um, France, Scandinavia, all these other countries. And it's now oh, wait a minute, they all tie into the same story as well. And it really is this global story of whiskey. And I was thinking this morning about it, and it's like, why do I think the whiskey is more important than something like, for instance, brandy? So what, what that great brandy. Why is it that great brandy is not the thing which is, in my opinion, the driver? And it comes quite simply, you know, you can't grow grapes everywhere. You know, there's lots of places you can't grow grapes. There is nowhere in the world, outside of bits of Antarctica, where you can't grow grain at all. You can grow grain. And the way I've always put it is, if somebody's grown grain somewhere, they've made booze out of it. If you can grow anything, somebody's made booze out of it. That's pretty much the way the human race works is grow a thing. Can I eat it? Yes. Can I make booze out of it? Yes. We're done. It's like the uh, the, the porn rule on the internet. If, if you can think of it, there's porn out there on it. Yeah. If you, if you can think of it, there's probably booze made out of it. And if not, don't, don't go any further because somebody will try and make booze out of it, you know. I think I've got in the book um, a little sort of note 
uh, I've got two footnotes. I'm very proud of my two footnotes. One of them is about how US law was wrong. And the other one is about how um, friends of mine, when I was at school, tried to make their own um, sort of like fruit wine, which I've described as generally as prison wine. Um, I went to a boarding school and people would get like whatever form of glass container they could, punch a tiny hole in the top, fill it with fruit juice, and uh, then add yeast, which I would sell them because they were all too scared to go to the supermarket and buy bread yeast because they thought that somebody might know what they were doing. So I made a, a nice lucrative side business in selling both yeast and also coffee filters because they needed coffee filters to filter out the sludge in their awful prison wine, which never tasted good, mostly made people sick uh, and was almost certainly not alcoholic. But hey, it, it paid for me to go down the pub every now and again because uh, I looked older than 18, you know, drinking age in the UK. I could get served in the pub and I was drinking real booze, not, you know, horrible stuff you made in a jam jar underneath your bed. <laughs> <laughs> Those are certainly excellent footnotes. Um, yeah, I one one of my broken record things, and uh, my listeners are going to hate me for mentioning this yet again. But it all comes back. I say everything comes back to phylloxera. Like for me, that's uh, it, it's it's just my my favorite thing historically speaking, where you can generally trace like the beginnings or the ends of certain either trade or trends to that moment where our American bugs landed on French soil and the French vines did not enjoy that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I love, I, I love the interconnectedness of it all. And I, I think that is certainly an entry point into a generalist approach to appreciating spirits too, because if you can appreciate the history of it, that's, that's yet another access point there's flavor yes there's technique and science yes but there's also history and culture and you know if you're not somebody who's super interested in you know how many plates this still has in it uh or or whether you know the presence of a rivet uh indicates a, a separate distillation then uh maybe maybe you'll enjoy the fact that commodore perry left some whiskey in japan that's that's uh, certainly another access point. So I'm um, I'm excited for your book. Uh, we'll definitely be uh, you know giving people access to that link so that when they can uh, when it when it's available they can go and pick up their copy. And um, and yeah, I'm just ex excited to to read some of your writing because um, obviously you know you're you're a very well versed person in the whiskey world. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's quite an exciting thing. It just. Um... It's a very weird thing writing your first actual book, and but it, I've, I've sort of cheated. Rather than having to come up with the idea myself, someone has told me, "Please write this." So next time, I do have to come up with my own idea and do a proper book, rather than it is a proper book. But I have to put it down. I'm British. I can't. I can't. You know, champion my own stuff. It's just not allowed. Mm. But uh, no, the series looks really good. I, 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 the first thing I did was I bought a couple of the other books, and so I now have a book about gin and wine, and uh, the beer one is coming out. I think this month. Um, but they all look really, really great. So, uh, yes, buy all of those. Also buy my one. My, my one will be good. Yeah, exactly. Might, you know, I might make the advance back and might one day make some money on it, which would be nice. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Billy, there's one one thing I really want to talk about before we uh, move on to the lightning round here. And this is this is something that you and I have a, uh, a shared affinity for, which is uh, mm -hmm. the sandwich. Um, oh, you, yes. you are a prolific architect i won't say maker i i, I, I would classify you as an, an architect of sandwiches and uh your instagram account 
at Meat Robot is uh, mm-hmm. someplace that I always kind of keep my eye on because very frequently a sandwich will appear on that feed, which gets me very, very hot and bothered. And uh, so I wanted to talk about maybe uh, instead of the philosophy of whiskey, maybe maybe the philosophy of sandwiches. What is your approach to an excellent sandwich? Well, the strange thing is, is that um, I don't really like bread. And so it's it's one of these weird things that I've I've become vaguely known in recent times as somebody who really likes sandwiches. Um, uh, no, I, I beginning of lockdown, I sort of like uh, as lots of people try to work out what I wanted to do, you know, over the the months where I was going to be stuck in my house. And so I said, I oh, know I'm going to up my sandwich game. I'm going to eat good lunch because I'm, I'm not being great at lunching. And so I decided to sort of try and make interesting sandwiches so i sought out whatever bread my local shop that i was allowed to go to had and uh, just sort of constructed stuff and gave myself a little bit of a break in the middle of the day oh yeah and i made bagels as well so mm. <laughs> oh, just just um, casually just made some bagels I, I, yeah well it, well the picture you just waved at me uh, yeah that, that they were not my best bagels um the, the wonders of instagram mean you get to twiddle pictures to make them look a little bit better than they were those were pretty good i will say they were very good but I, I watch a lot. I'm a, I'm, as I said, I'm quite a big foodie. I'm a big fan of cooking. And it was one of those things where I was like, I need to do something during lockdown to keep myself occupied. Now I'm actually in my house all day rather than out and about, whether in you know bars and things like that or in the office. I'm now sat at home. And uh, I've lived in my place for 11, 12 years now. And I've never really lived here until the last year. So it's like, right, you know, do something interesting during the day, keep myself occupied. And yeah, so um, I started craving bagels. Um, there's loads of places to make great bagels here in London, spread all over the city. And the place I like best of all is uh, right over in the east called Brick Lane. It's a, a really famous street, which at one end, it's got loads of Indian restaurants. And it's always been a place where it's always been filled with uh, different immigrant people come from all over the world. I think it's like um, Huguenot weavers were the first people who set up there. So there's still fabric stores and clothing stores. and But at the, the north end of Brick Lane, um, there are two bagel shops. There's the Bagel Bake and the other one, which I don't know what the name is, because <laughs> you decide very, very early in your time in London, which is yours. Yes. And you go to one, and the other one is weird and perverted, and only weird people go there. And how dare they go to the other shop? It's obviously not as good. So I go to the Bagel Bake, and uh, they do great. They're famous for their um, um, salt beef bagels. I avoid those. I get a bag of smoked salmon and cream cheese bagels. They're not big, big round bagels with big holes in. They're like big buns almost, and they're just fantastic. And so I had a massive craving for those one day. So I said, right, how do I make bagels? So I went out there, you know, looked it up, made some awful bagels, made some slightly better bagels. I've now got up to making all right bagels. Um, and after all of that, I posted up pictures uh, on Instagram saying, made some bagels. And a friend of mine pinged me and said, uh, yeah, well, you you live near Cricklewood, don't you? I was like, yeah. And I massive face palm. Biggest Jewish community in London live just down the road from me and make some of the best bagels in Europe, let alone London. So yeah, I could almost have walked to a better bagel shop than my kitchen. Um, yeah, so yes, my, my, my bagel craving still continues and I will fulfill it now. We're allowed to move around a bit more here in London. But yeah, so I failed on the bagel front. But it's one of those things, again, of just trying out new things, trying to cook things. So on a sandwich front, I used to work in the US quite a lot. Um, I used to work in New York and Connecticut. The joys of Stanford and Norwalk, Connecticut, if anybody knows of their gloriousness. If you don't, avoid. 
avoid. Anyway, many friends of mine still live there. And uh, Diageo HQ, uh, North America, is in Norwalk. Oh, uh, no kidding. It's next door, next door to the building I used to work at. I live on the site of the old Guinness plant in London. And I see out the window the site of Diageo HQ, although they're moving out at the moment. I used to work in the US next to Diageo HQ. So everywhere I've been to over the last sort of 20 years has involved me being next door to Diageo. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I was over there quite a lot. And you know, US sandwich tradition is quite a different thing to UK sandwich tradition. You know, we get like a slightly sad triangle of sandwich in a cardboard box on a shelf somewhere, you know, if you buy it from the, uh, from the market. Whereas in the US, you have this incredible deli tradition of you know, sandwiches, which are so big, you can't physically fit them into your face. So I try to uh, to move a little bit more towards the sandwiches I remember from my time in America and try and make things tall and very unhealthy, mainly very unhealthy. And so it was, um, yes, it was, it's been a voyage of discovery over the past few weeks, months. Oh, my God, it's been months now. Months and months yes. of delicious sandwiches. Yes. So uh, that is that is certainly a hallmark of your sandwiches, either the... The, the plating style, if you, if you slice it and you, I, you, you like to plate with sort of a, a little bit of verticality to it to give it a little bit of you know, oomph, a little bit of critical mass. Uh, and then, you know, you had a, a like a quasi-Korean style barbecue pork sandwich that, you know, really fit, you know, yeah. is exactly one of those kind of sandwiches that, that you need two hands to hold at all times. Uh, and I, my, I'm a burger guy. Uh, sandwiches, of course. Yeah. Uh, but the bur- if, if, I, if ever I were to do an eating challenge, maybe not an eating contest, uh, but certainly an eating challenge, it would be burgers. Uh, I can take down a two pound burger and then, you know, just napkin dab. Thank you very much. Walk out. Um, that, that is for whatever reason, right. that is my medium. Um, but you know, whether it's a burger or a sandwich, uh, when I try a new place, especially if it's not, you know, if it's, if it's a lunchy type place, I will try out whatever I think is sort of like the, the middle of the road sandwich to, or if it's a breakfast place, their breakfast sandwich to see if this place knows what they're doing, because there's so many situations where I've had a sandwich out and you bite into it. And like the sandwich almost just becomes like a deconstructed sandwich automatically because they didn't put any thought into setting it up. So I don't know. I just, I have very specific and rigorous thoughts on sandwich ergonomics. Like certain things should not be placed next to one another. You need to think about where you put the cheese. I was making Rubens recently. We got some really nice uh, sauerkraut from from one of my uh, actually friends who's a distiller. He made some sauerkraut. And so he said, well, let's make some Rubens. And so I was on YouTube watching different Rubens. And, you know, there's there's a couple different schools of thought on where you place the cheese. Like, do you do you put the cheese uh, on either side to kind of keep keep the meat in or do you put the cheese in the middle as this sort of fixative and these have radically different implications for the ergonomics of the bite. You know, what are you seeking, your, sinking your teeth into? Does the cheese get stuck on your teeth? Like, these are high stakes things. And uh, yeah. so I, I guess I just want to advocate your Instagram at meat robot, all one word for uh, not only fun booze stuff, but fun sandwich stuff, which I always enjoy. Yeah, well, scary. Well, the the meat robot thing does seem to vaguely fit in with my current meaty forward sandwiches. It's actually just one of the very random many names I used to have on the internet in the olden days, which uh, 
I tried it. My, my, my original name on the internet is Cowfish. And if you look at, it used to be, you typed in the word Cowfish into Google and I was number one. Now the actual Cowfish, which is a, a real actual fish, um, is number one, as it should be. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's somebody else uh, got Cowfish on Instagram. The problem I have is I think it might be me. I might have, but back in the early days of Instagram, I think Drunk Billy, because Drunk Billy occasionally does bad things on the internet. And I think Drunk Billy may have uh, got my uh, my Instagram account and then promptly forgotten the password and the email address used. And I've been trying to get hold of it ever since because uh, Cowfish has never posted on Instagram, but that account still sits there taunting me every day. Yeah. Same thing with yes. Modern Bar Card on Twitter. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing that I, I don't like Twitter uh, and don't feel motivated to be on that platform because uh if i did then modern bar cart would be my white whale it was some 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 crazy company that sells modern bar carts but has also <laughs> never posted so uh anybody from the twitter sphere is listening and wants to do some legwork and get me that handle then then maybe we'll start tweeting but until then uh it's going to be pretty instagram heavy so billy uh anything else you want to share with our listeners here before we jump into a few lightning round questions no, not really. The, the, big, the big thing for me at the moment, the things I really, you know, especially folks who are over in the US who don't get so much exposure to the weirdness we have over in Europe at the moment, is that uh, there's lots of cool spirits happening over here, and hopefully you'll see more of them soon, especially at the moment, English whiskey and English rum. English rum, or British, sorry, I do apologize, all the people of Scotland who I've just insulted. Uh, Scottish rum and English rum. Um, some great stuff. I've got some stuff from Orkney at the moment, uh, named after Orkney's only pirate. Uh, a guy called John Gow, who really uh, I pinged over to a friend of mine and said, have you heard of this guy? And she looked into him and came out and said, it did not go well for him. So yeah, <laughs> run named after this, this Orcadian pirate who really did not do well. Um, but we've got uh, whiskeys popped up now all over England and we've got rum popping up all over Scotland, which is just not what you'd expect, but there's loads of great stuff happening here into mainland Europe as well. And so hopefully uh, it'll make it out further in the world. But um, anybody out there who is looking for interesting stuff, we have stuff happening in Europe as well as all the cool things happening everywhere else in the world. Yeah. That's my, I'm trying to, trying to push the home spirits at the moment. You know, it's uh, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. interesting in, things in, happening in tricky times like these, you know, you, you, you want to get that GDP, uh, GDP up to where it should be. Yeah. I have a distillery. I can almost see out the window here at the moment. Uh, one of the, uh, I invested a friend of mine opened one of the first London whiskey distilleries and that disappeared it is now owned by a honey company as you do. Um, but uh, down the road from me, you have a story called Bimba. Uh, Bimba is the Polish word for moonshine. Uh, it's opened by a, a guy from Poland who moved over here years ago, uh, built up a huge building company, um, has now opened his whiskey distillery, is making great whiskey, and is now about to open a Scottish one as well because he's doing particularly well. But yeah, so you know, if you can have whiskey in the northwest corner of London on an industrial estate next door to a supermarket, which is where it is, um, also next door to a garage, which has this bad habit of having burnt out cars dumped outside, which is slightly more dangerous for a distillery. Mm -hmm. uh, they are moving. Yeah, even here in London, we have weird and wonderful distilleries popping up like we do everywhere else, but making some great spirit. So yeah, I'm slightly a bit of a fan of British stuff at the moment. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, well, we'll have some links. That's, is that B-I-M-B-A? B-I-M-B-E-R. B-E-R. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I have a I have a little cask hiding in the rafters. Um, I had a cask from the previous distillery, the London Distillery Company. Uh, when I emptied that, I gave Bimba the cask. Uh, Darius, the uh, the boss, looked at it and went, "Don't like your cask. I'm going to fix it." Took it to pieces, 
um, planed the inside, recharred it, put it together again, made sure it was watertight, then filled it with his spirit and put it up in the uh, the rafters of the distillery. So a full service distillery, very much. So mm-hmm. I now have that was originally from um, uh, Kings County Distillery uh, over uh, New York State, um, and so it was Kings County Bourbon, little twenty liter cask, dumped, sent to the UK, filled with London whiskey, dumped, and now it's a refill. That was a first fill bourbon, but now it's a refill bourbon and London whiskey cask refilled with London whiskey and now maturing in London. So, yeah, it's uh, an interesting little cask that, and I uh, look forward to trying it sometime soon. I should probably drop my line, actually. It's a couple of years old. It's almost time to have a taste. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, we'll have a few links over to uh, some of the great things going on in the UK. And then what was that pirate's name? Just again, so I can. Uh, John Gow, J. Gow Rum up in Orkney, G-O-W. But yeah, it's um, I've got some. It's again, it's this weird thing you don't expect. You know, sugarcane to grow in Orkney. It's right up in the north of Scotland, island middle. No, they don't grow sugarcane there. They can't, but they can import molasses. And um, import molasses, they do. <laughs> uh, amazing. Uh, so on that note, let's jump into the lightning round. Uh, now you're generally a straight spirits guy, but we're gonna we're gonna throw a little little added challenge here. What's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite cocktail of all time, what's something maybe you've been more interested in recently? This is not as difficult one as you might think. Um, my background when it came to spirits, the way I learned about spirits quite a lot was by going to bars in London, you know, good cocktail bars, finding a time when it wasn't too busy, then saying to the bartender, tell me everything you know. And uh, you find the right bartender, they will quite happily, as long as you buy drinks, tell you everything they know. Um, but looking at this one, my, my favorite cocktail, and this is a massive cliche, so I'll only jump into it and jump out of it again quickly, is uh, the entirety of the Negroni family. So bitters, vermouth, and a thing. Um, gin, traditionally, obviously. But I was introduced to it by uh, Jared Brown of uh, Sipsmith, but also just generally being uh, Jared Brown fame. Uh, he looks a little bit like uh, the dude out of Big Lebowski, but wearing a suit, and he's just about as laid back and uh, is incredibly good at talking about booze and flavor and uh yeah his story of the negroni was uh he when he's a young bartender he um he was asked to make one and he didn't know what it was but his standard cheat was it's like that's a great drink let me just go check the proportions for you so i can make sure it's right and he turned around and he opened up his book looked in there and saw negroni even equal parts of the three ingredients and then he thought like feel the customer staring at the back of his neck knowing that he knew absolutely nothing about how to make drinks so since I've still been investigating them, but my favorite drink of all time when it comes to my uh, interesting cocktails I, I make uh, on occasion, uh, is I like an aviation. Mm. I love a gin sour. I like a, uh, and I love a, a violet sort of like tinge to it as a, a type of sweets. We get over here, like candy. We get over here called a, a Palmer violet, which is literally a sugary sort of like a hard, um, sort of like a crunchy candy thing, which tastes of violets. And they are, a divisive flavor. Um, I have a, a three kilo bag of them next door, which I dip into from time to time because I discovered they sold them by the three kilo bag on Amazon. And I couldn't say no. But that as a, you know, a gin sour, that little hint of that sort of floral violet character. You know, I bought a bottle of Violette 10 years ago and I still have most of a bottle of Violette and I really still need to dilute it with a load of vodka. Uh, I, there's a bit of truth Violette, which is one of the most intensely purple things you'll ever have. I've been told by a number of bartenders, stop using that neat. Stick vodka in it. Make it last longer. I've got half a bottle of it still. It's lasting fine. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I've, I've had that and it is that it is just, it is intense. Um, amazing. Those yeah. are both, uh, both cocktails that I also enjoy. Is there, well, we kind of talked about products and trends, but I guess maybe, maybe in general, if we're not, if we're not talking UK here, if we're, if we're taking a global lens, are there any products or trends in the, in the spirits world, uh, or the bar world and cocktail world that, that you feel are underrated or underappreciated at the moment? It's a difficult one because, again, all these sort of things, the past year have taken a lot of the things which I thought needed to be looked at more and pushed them into the forefront. You know, my big one was always um, low and no alcohol stuff being done right because there's been a lot of it out there which was not done right. And all of a sudden, people are now doing it right because you, yeah, people need to pivot, people need to, to come up with new things. And also the past year has seen a lot of people drinking a lot too much and then trying not to drink. And so you need to find something good. But yeah, it's... All these sort of trends sort of you know are all psychic and you know when it comes to individual spirits you know every year i'm part of the crowd has always said this year will be mezcal's year this year will be the year it takes over the world and every year it's not um but every year it slowly sort of gains headway same with tequila you know the last few years have seen the growth of rum and you know into a connoisseurship market rather than just the party spirit and yeah so most of the time i don't see anything that's particularly underappreciated or un, uh, unloved just because they're all there. They're all there in the background. They're all rolling through, and everything sort of like you know, sort of swoops around, really, sort of thing. You know, gets this little bit of limelight. Um, so, unfortunately, not a very boring answer. In that, yes, all things are underappreciated, and all things are also appreciated. That makes <laughs> that's, sense. That's a that that's a, the type of answer that I would expect from a, a whiskey philosopher. Um, oh, uh, I need to get some sort of special hat. I think. Yeah. Whiskey philosophy hat. I need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like a hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what have you seen anything about the low ABV gins that have been coming out? We uh, we just had Gordon's zero point zero has just landed on the Whiskey Exchange website, and uh, yeah, so we we be working with Diageo and doing some advertising of that uh, across uh, social media platforms, and uh, uh, our social media queen is just off on holiday, so I've been keeping an eye on our uh, social media stuff and. The comments on the Gordon 0.0 are exactly what you'd expect. Uh, lots of why. Why would you do this? Um, in the case of Gordon's, I could not possibly comment on whether I agree with that or not. I, I sort of feel, why would you do Gordon's is fine. Yeah, uh, there's... Started out with the wonders of Seedlip back in the day, which was definitely not a gin replacement, but was a gin replacement. They were very careful to point out it wasn't to replace gin, but was used to replace gin. And things have moved on a lot since then. There's now some really great things out there. Some folks are really focusing on how to create intense flavor without alcohol, because alcohol really is this thing which transfers flavor into, you know, concentrates flavor and helps flavor to come through and gives texture, gives weight. You know, you sit there, drink Seedlip, and then drink some other clove forward gin. You know, the flavor might not be that different, but the, the feel, the texture, the weight, really intensity really is. Uh, cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture. Again, this is one of these weird and difficult ones for me because generally I, I, I don't have that many sort of like heroes I'd want to drink with or people on that side of things. Generally, I always pull out a bunch of musicians who uh, I want to have sort of like, you know, pick brains of and the drink would very much be a... Um, sort of sideline thing um i think when it comes to sort of that side of things it was always you know i'd almost wanted to have a drink with lemmy but i know that i wouldn't survive the situation uh, and it would definitely be one of the last times i ever went drinking if if i actually came out the other side at all 
Uh, and in that situation, the cocktail in question would be Jack Daniels. Uh, I might be allowed ice, and that would probably be as, as far as it went. Um, no, again, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I don't really sort of have that sort of thing. At the moment, I very much, there's a bunch of friends of mine who I want to go out for a drink with who are very much, uh, you know, not able to get anywhere near where I am. You know, I've... I went to the uh, went to the pub for the first time in uh, six months, I think, pretty much uh, on Monday, uh, with a friend of mine who lives down the road, and that was very exciting. Mm. So at this juncture, I'm feeling uh, uh, somewhere where we actually do a cocktail, which is not just done off the back of a bar, with by somebody who uh, sort of you know, gets confused by the concept of a gin and tonic. So an actual proper cocktail um, with almost anybody I know who doesn't live within ten minutes walk of me is very much where I'd like to be at the moment. Yeah, it's, a, it's the simple pleasures uh, have sort of been recontextualized by uh, yeah. the current situation. And, and so I, I think a lot of people out there would be very much in agreement with you. I, th- I think a, a vaguely complicated cocktail that I did not have to make myself. That is very much where I'm sitting at the moment. <laughs> amen. Amen. All right. Last uh, last thing here, and we'll see we'll see if you have an answer for this one. What's an unusual or controversial view that you hold in the spirits or cocktail world? Again, this depends on which part of the world you, the spirits cocktail world you come from. But uh, uh, low ABV is not a bad thing in the spirits world. So not the low ABV, you know, no, no and low things we talked about before. But a lower ABV does not make it a worse spirit. And in the whiskey world, telling whiskey people that a whiskey that's below forty percent. Well, legally, it's not a whiskey, but whiskey below 40% isn't a bad thing. The amount of people who have just been shocked by that being a thing that I believe, you know. And these days, you know, I drink these Asian spirits, which are bottled at, you know, sub 30% or 25% as a standard bottling strength. You know, ABV as a um, a way of creating intensity of flavor and things, that sort of thing. It's not the be all and end all of everything. And it's all about creating things that taste nice. And that's something that people often forget. And as somebody who occasionally works with uh, independent bottlers in the whiskey world, uh, especially the bottles we do at work, the uh, people sort of say, oh, this, this whiskey put out, is it car strength? And we go, no. And they go, well, how dare you put out this whiskey and remove the choice from me that I can't make it the strength I want it to be? To which the answer we have is, um, we tried it, and at full strength, it wasn't very nice. We added some water to it, and then it tasted nice. And so we then took a little bit of the water out for the final version. So we made it nice and strong still. You know, it's not these aren't like you know low strength spirits. You know, we we just made it so that when you drink it out the bottle, if you really wanted to, but straight from the bottle, it tastes good. You can then, if you want to, knock it down further in strength and, you know, in our pin that might taste better. We just wanted to make it so it tasted nice out the bottle. ABV is not everything. And be able to, just judging things based on ABV is something that, from, from a marketing point of view, it's really, really, really great. As somebody who sells whiskey as well, the fact that we put out some whiskeys last year at 66.6% and people went, oh, the devil's whiskey, and then bought it. And it was great if you put a bit of water in it. But yeah, it's it's that sort of thing. It's for me, there is so much more to it, and people, and along with that comes the whole thing of people saying, if you put ice in a spirit, you destroy it. It's like no, you you change it. You know, a, you know, changing the ABV, tweaking a spirit, adding ice, changing temperature, making it warmer, making it colder. You know, one of the things you do with Japanese spirits is you drink them with hot water. So you know, shochu. I was saying about cold, fizzy water. If, if you're in Okinawa where it's really hot, you're not going to add a load of hot water to it. But up in the north of Japan, happily add warm water to shochu. They make an oyawari uh, rather than mizuari, which is the stove with, with cold water. And 
yeah, this is a, a thing that, again, you know, we're playing with temperature, playing with these things. Spirits are the thing you start from when it comes out of the bottle. Play with it to try and make it so it tastes as good as it can be, which is especially in the Scotch whiskey world is uh, is occasionally controversial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certainly in the bur- bourbon world as well. There's there's a certain <laughs> contingent of uh, cask strength or die. And, uh, you know, it's, it, there's, there's, there's certainly a part of me that suspects that the price tag on these cask strength bottles are not purely just for the fact that there's more taxable alcohol in there. It's not just a tariff situation. It's, uh, it's also, also sort of a, well, we're going to, we're going to sort of prey on these people's misguided belief that this is, this is worth it just because it's hotter. So, yeah, but things like sometimes it can be better. And, you know, uh, in the bourbon world, I have great bourbons down in the air, 40% up. I've had some, you know, the, uh, the stags, the old, the old hazmat George T stags rocking in at, you know, above sort of 70% ABV. Obscene things, which, you know, I had to put a bit of ice in, in order to make it, I could drink it out my eyes setting on fire. But, um, yeah, my, my only proper drinking in- injury was after a night drinking, starting off on George T. Stag and uh, ending by me walking out into a cold night and just falling face first into the street. Um, <laughs> dangerous, dangerous stuff. But yeah, it's one of those, it's people having an open mind. Again, I, I, I will drink anything. I will try anything. I may not like things. I will probably like most bits and pieces, but having that open mind of certain, of accepting that you could well be wrong in your beliefs and you should probably challenge your beliefs to see whether things will taste different, taste better, and just always be ready to say, yep, I was wrong. Which is a strange thing for somebody who spends a lot of his life telling people on the internet they're wrong. But yeah, if they tell me I'm wrong and and they're right, it's rare, but yeah, this does happen. (laughs) Well, I think that's a very healthy mindset to embody. Uh, I think it. I think it works well with the the T-shirt that you're wearing. You know, sort of the Picard. The you know the pushing pushing into to new frontiers is uh, it re- certainly requires a little bit of humility and uh, certainly a great deal of curiosity. So I'm glad that you were able to join us here to uh, kind of uh, spread the good word about about how to drink and how to sort of uh, become curious. In, in a way that uh, stimulates your palate. So, uh, Billy Abbott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Cool. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bark Heart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips, and 
keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Whiskey and Sandwich Insights, courtesy of Billy Abbott, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.